are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I am Brendan, and I'm here once again with Skylar. Skylar in the house. Is Zousy. It's good to be here. <laughs> We're in a new setup today. Yeah. It's a little more echoey in this room. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to get some sound dampeners or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's also very dark. Yes. What you been up to this week, man? What have I been up to? Let's see. Life. Life. Prepping. Reading a lot. Reading LDS talks. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Reading and listening to LDS talks. Uh, I can't listen. LDS doctrine. I made the mistake of listening to one that the, well, two that the interpreter mentioned on their Easter episode. Yeah. And I better just read through. Oh my goodness. It was Eric Huntsman gave a half. It's probably a half hour devotional Mm -hmm. and did that like cry thing, whether it's fake or not. It's not my point, but that like (laughs) cry thing, like at least 10 times in 30 minutes. I can't do it. Better to read it. Let me just read it. Let me just read it. Stop manipulating me. Yep. (laughs) That's what I Well, question for you. Yeah. What did you want to be when you were growing up? So I wanted it's your question of the day. Yeah, well, we haven't mentioned birds for a couple episodes. I wanted to be an ornithologist, and when I mentioned that, when I was asked that in like third grade or whatever, fourth grade, yeah, they said, "Oh, what what uh, is interesting to you about teeth?" <laughs> That's what the teacher asked me. <laughs> well, and you said, "Bird teeth are very fascinating." Your bird teeth are. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, probably the most dominant profession I wanted to be in was a professional baseball player. Yep, yeah. that was that was the dream. I was obsessed with baseball. Pe- yeah. People who know me now are usually surprised by this because I still like baseball, and uh, you know I like playing around with my kids with baseball and everything. But I'm not obsessed with it. But man, when I was growing up. It was the air I breathed. Interesting. Was baseball. Have and, have uh, we mentioned what your favorite team was? Uh well, professional team was yes. the uh Texas Rangers. Was it? Yeah. And then I had a stint where I was a bandwagon Red Sox fan. Okay. Um when they were really good. Yeah. Uh yeah, but yeah, that didn't last long. I was back to the Rangers. I've always liked the the uh Texas teams because I grew up in Amarillo, Texas. So I went to a couple of Astros games once. Oh, yeah. yeah one summer. Yeah. Usually, most people, I, there's quite a few Astros fans where I'm from, but Dallas is quite a bit closer to us. I mean, Houston's like an 11-hour drive from Amarillo. So uh, Dallas is only six hours, so it's not, not as far. So most people cheer for the Dallas teams. But, yeah, I spent my childhood traveling around on travel baseball teams. And, yeah. Loved it. That's Loved awesome. it. So, anyways, fun stuff. All right. Uh, let's get into the material for this week. So, we're going to be looking at the Come Follow Me, the LDS curriculum uh, that they use across all of their their mm-hmm. wards. And, of course, you know, if any new listeners are with us, the format of the podcast is we look through as two creedal Christians – otherwise known as perhaps evangelical Christians, if that's more helpful. Uh, we like the term credo Christians to identify that we 
you know, root ourselves in the traditions and the beliefs of the church um, in history. So anyways, but uh, yeah, so we are just two creative Christians interacting with the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum. That's kind of what we're doing every week. And so when, you know, you hear that Skylar is listening to LDS talks and reading LDS scriptures or whatever else all week. That's why. It's because yep. he's prepping for the podcast. And so this week we're looking at the curriculum for April 3rd to the 9th. And the uh, the title is just Easter. Easter. Because, uh, of course, this is the curriculum that everybody will be studying leading up to Easter week. So the subtitle of the curriculum is, O Grave, Where is Thy Victory? And then it goes on to say, as you prepare to teach this week, because this is the Sunday school manual for the teachers who are teaching in the Sunday school classes, it says, as you prepare to teach this week, consider how your class's discussion on Easter Sunday can build faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement. So we are going to focus quite a bit, in fact, really this whole episode on the atonement and try to work through some of the LDS doctrine on the atonement and also make clear what uh, what a credo Christian understanding of the atonement is. And it probably should be said out the at the outset that when we say we want to make clear what the credo Christian understanding of the atonement is, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to package that up into a one hour show uh, because the atonement is, I mean, it's the heart, it's the heart of the gospel, if you want to put it that way and uh, evangelical Christian thought. And it's not something that can just be boiled down into one or two sentences. In fact, uh, I was looking for just a succinct definition of the atonement from any theologian. And all the theologians that I read, none of them had just a you know, three, four sentence definition of the atonement. And that's because the atonement is such a deep and rich doctrine that uh, you can't really just squeeze it into one sharp, short statement. So we're going to be talking about the atonement, and in the invite sharing section of the LDS curriculum, it says, what is the atonement? It says, bring, bring, bring up questions like this for your class to discuss. What is the atonement of Jesus Christ, and how can I receive the blessings of Christ's atonement? We're going to try to think through that from an LDS perspective. What is the atonement of Jesus Christ, and how does an LDS person, within their understanding of it, receive the blessings of Christ's atonement. All right, so moving down to the Teach the Doctrine section, the first subtitle is this, Jesus Christ delivers us from sin and death, strengthens us in our weaknesses, and comforts us in our trials. So there's kind of there's a general, you know, uh, think of how Jesus strengthens you and comforts you in your trials and in your weaknesses, uh, and then probably the meat of this section is the 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 point where this is what the uh, the curriculum is is teaching. Listen, just listen to it. Perhaps a simple object lesson that they could do in their classes could help illustrate the difference between being cleansed from sin and being perfected. So you see, they're drawing a distinction there. It's different. It's a different thing for them when they say being cleansed from sin versus being perfected. You could write on the board the first few lines from Moroni 10.32, but include spelling or grammar errors. Then invite a class member to erase but not correct the errors. Did this solve the problem? What lessons did we learn from this scripture and this object lesson about the effect of the Savior's atonement, the effect the Savior's atonement can have on us? And it says this statement from President 
from from President Uchtdorf. I'm, I'm assuming that's how you say it properly. He's a German guy, right? Mm-hmm. This might also help. Listen, this is what Uchtdorf says. If salvation means only erasing our mistakes and sins, then salvation, as wonderful as it is, does not fulfill the Father's aspirations for us. His aim is much higher. He wants his sons and daughters to become like him. So you see how they're mixing into this idea of atonement, not what God has done for us, but really what we do as a result of this thing that God has done. And so they immediately start to draw out this line of, we're not just talking about being cleansed, we're talking about being perfected. And the exercise that it's supposed to do in the class is write this verse on the board. And I think it's worthwhile to read this verse because it's such a critical verse to understand LDS doctrine. And it says a lot that this is the one verse that they're pointing out. And this is at the very end of the Book of Mormon, uh, literally the last page of the Book of Mormon. This is how the book ends. And this is Moroni 10, verse 32. And I might read 33 as well. It says, Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. And deny yourselves of all ungodliness. Okay? That's a very clear command, right? Be perfected in Jesus. What does that mean? Deny yourself of all ungodliness. So this is acts that you're doing, works that you're doing. And if, okay, conditional statement, right? Mm -hmm. If ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your mind, might, mind, and strength, If you do that, then, and by the way, a conditional statement means only Only if, if. then, listen to this, is his grace sufficient for you. Okay, oh, man, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the the really popular... We believe in grace. Yeah, we believe in grace. His grace is sufficient. What what does an LDS person mean when his they say his grace is sufficient? Well, if they're being consistent with their own scriptures, according to Moroni here... Um, his grace is only sufficient for you if you deny yourself of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength. That's and, the only way. And even the coming unto Christ, right, is by an exercise of will and agency. Yeah. We just looked at John 6, the opposite of what Jesus teaches. Mm-hmm. Where the Father, if he doesn't draw you, I don't save you. He says elsewhere, if, the, you know, if you're not of my sheep, you don't hear me. Yep. And then it goes on to say, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. And again, if ye by the grace of God are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then ye then are you sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that you become holy without spot. Mm-hmm. In the Uchtdorf talk that you just read from, mm-hmm. he actually does a definition of the grace of God that's in line with what the Book of Mormon just said. Yeah. Let me just read this. Yeah. Just one paragraph. That'd be good. A powerful expression of that love, um, the love of Christ, that is, of that love is what the scriptures often call the grace of God. And then here's the definition. The divine assistance and endowment of strength by which we grow from the flawed and limited beings we are now. Notice, not sinful, dead in sin. No, flawed and limited beings we are now into exalted beings of 
truth and light until we are glorified in truth and know all things. Now, most people read right past that. If you look at what he's citing there at the end, it is DNC 9328. Well, <clears throat> I've put DNC 93 in the show notes almost every episode. Let me just really quickly. In DNC 93, if you look at the whole context, so I, it's, this is supposedly John, the apostle speaking. Mm-hmm. He says, I, John, saw that he, that is Christ, received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace for grace until he received a fullness. Mm-hmm. Christ became the word in this section. He's not eternally God. Yeah, He worked his way up. And it says over and over, he did not receive the fullness at first. And then this, it says, um, it goes on to say that man was also in the beginning with God. So, you know, John 1, 1, right? Yeah. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here, here Joseph Smith, supposedly through the, <laughs> the apostle John, through him or whatever, right. says, mankind was also in the beginning with God, and that truth is independent in the sphere in which God has placed it. And this is... Where also it teaches that the elements are eternal. So, it, I mean, and it says even in 38, every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning. Hmm. And God, having redeemed man from the fall, men became again in their infant state, innocent before God. Yep. So, a little different. Yeah. It's a weird thing to put in a footnote when you're talking about it. But even without that whole context, I don't think we mean by grace, divine assistance right. and endowment of strength. Yep. No. <laughs> That's it's not, not what we mean. Uh, yeah, not at all. All right. There's not a whole lot, honestly, to the to the lesson. Um, the bulk of everything is in the additional resources this week because there's there's one more little bit under this subsection that says stories and analogies can help us better understand Christ's atonement. And we're going to go to that because it tells you that uh, you're supposed to share a story or analogy from one of the general conference messages that are mentioned in the additional resources. And so we're going to work through some of those, and there's one analogy or story in particular that that we want to draw some attention to. Uh, but the last subsection is really just a compilation of, of some of the uh, endings of the gospel that are covering the resurrection of Jesus. And the line, the subheading there is witnesses in the New Testament bore testimony that Jesus Christ conquered death. And so it's just kind of, you know, think about the significance of Jesus's resurrection. And uh, there's one line here that says, perhaps your class would gain deeper understanding of the importance of the witnesses of Jesus Christ's resurrection if they imagine they are lawyers and news reporters investigating the claim that Christ was resurrected. Invite them to find people in their scriptures who could serve as witnesses. Uh, that's an interesting mm-hmm. exercise. They could even write a brief summary of what these people might say when testifying in court or when being interviewed for the news report. Oh, man, that's just too cheesy for me personally. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, but that's really all that is there. And, uh, when it comes to focusing on the atonement other than the additional resources, which it gives several, uh, scripture passages, some from the Bible, some from the book of Mormon and one from the doctrine and covenants, um, that are scriptures about the savior's atonement and resurrection. And it encourages, of course, the class to read through those. And then also to to read through and listen to messages about the Savior's atonement and resurrection, and there's four messages given there. So, what were we gonna say? Well, I just think one one thing that rubs me just the wrong way 
is, well, okay, they include witnesses, meaning they saw something that happened, but it's like, consider maybe doing this or yeah. perhaps maybe it's important. Yeah. Uh, uh, like it's optional. Yeah. And I get the sense from almost everything um, that I went through for this episode that it really doesn't matter to LDS whether this happened or not. Yeah. Because even if it didn't happen, it's a good life to live. Yep. You know? Yep. Oh, no, it's a good life. I get all these fruits in my life. I feel connected to Jesus. I had some experience. It doesn't really matter, ultimately, if it yeah. happened. Yeah. Whereas for us, right, this didn't happen. Our faith is for not, as Paul yep. even said. That's right. Absolutely. So it's a little more important than a perhaps. Yep. Okay, so now we get to benefit from all the fruits of you listening and reading lots of LDS stuff. So... Um, I just want to turn it over to you, Skylar, just to break down some of the things that you heard and, or I guess read in the talks that you were interacting with, uh, some of the analogies that were given, some of the illustrations that were given, and, uh, and then even perhaps some of the ways that they're using particular scripture passages, if there's anything to say on those. But uh, what, what do, according to this stuff, what do the LDS people believe about the atonement? Well, so they're going to say it's necessary. They're going to say it's paying for something, that it's reversing some sort of fall. But once again, keep in mind, in the, in the context of we are not guilty for Adam's transgression, but for our own sins, right? And of course, in early Mormonism, the fall was a good thing. And it's still there, especially in the temple where you see that, or 2 Nephi 2, right? Adam fell, the men might be, the men are that they might have joy. But they realize, okay, wait, there's a problem, though. If it's a good thing and the atonement is reversing the fall, is he reversing a good thing? No, okay, well, there's got to be something necessary about the fall. And that's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. We don't see the fall as necessary. Yeah. Right? It's, it's post-fall. In, in a sense, sin is unnatural. It's not a necessary part of our progression. In our <laughs> but, of course, they don't start the story there. So let's go back even further into the pre-mortal council, right? So I'm just going through their gospel principles. Yeah. So we're covering I, more of the mainstream. I would make one interesting Please. point on that just from a credo-Christian perspective. So there has been a little bit of a debate on how uh, credo-Christians have understood the necessity of the atonement. So, so people like Augustine and Aquinas defended what they called hypothetical necessity. Mm -hmm. And hypothetical necessity was the thought that it could have hypothetically been possible that God could have chosen an alternative uh, to be the manner by which he would save mankind. Sure, they don't want to live But instead, God. he chose vicarious sacrifice of the Son of God in his grace and sovereign wisdom because that's the way in which the greatest number of advantages concur uh, or occur, and and uh, the way in which grace, his grace, is most marvelously exhibited, or mm -hmm. perhaps be the way that they would have put it. So, so there there is a little bit of that that way of thinking, even in creative Christian thought, of this being just kind of the hypothetical best way that uh, he could receive the glory. That's been pretty heavily combated by Reformation thinkers. Uh, Reformation thinkers would hold to more of what. John John Murray came to to call it the consequence uh, the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. So consequent implying that God was under no obligation to save any man, but by His free and sovereign grace, He chooses to hate, to save some. So there's His electing grace that's at work there before the foundation of the world, and because of His electing grace, 
Because of that, God is then under necessity to accomplish the salvation of these sinners whom he's chosen to save. And the necessary way that he does that is through the sacrifice of his own son. So the the necessity of sacrifice arises out of God's own holy nature mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, just, just, I mean, and there's more we could talk about there from a credo-Christian perspective, mm-hmm. but just to fill in a little bit of the way that we would think about the necessity of the atonement up against an LDS way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, of course, they go back even further, right? Because they're going to start, as even the Gospel Principles Manual does, with the premortal council or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, keep in mind, Jesus Christ, this is a heading from their manual, right? Which we, we would, by the way, even in a critical Christian understanding, we wouldn't go to, we wouldn't use the same phraseology, we wouldn't have the same understanding of that. Mm-hmm. But we would say that there was a Trinitarian plan of redemption yeah. that was agreed upon. Uh, mm-hmm. In perfect Actum unity, among, yep, amongst the mm-hmm. amongst the uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and that all of them committed to carry out this plan of redemption in perfect unity mm-hmm. um, from the beginning of the or before the beginning mm-hmm. of the earth, I should say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, anyways. in the beginning was the Word, but not in the beginning was the Word in all of us. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so Jesus Christ became our chosen leader and Savior. Yeah. Uh, we already covered that in the DNC 93 or whatever, but just keep in mind, Jesus Christ is of our same generation, just further along in his progression. He's chosen, then there's a war in heaven, and so a lot of, you know, there's a lot of fight over that, even within Mormonism, between even an Ezra Taft Benson, who's this like kind of old school conservative libertarian type, but... Um, you know, you had others that didn't like Benson, as there's there's a really good recent book on Benson, by the way. Hmm. Um, so agencies, this eternal principle, so you got to choose and all that. All right, now we come to the fall. And this is, once again, this is going to shift through the different phases, but using the 2009 manual, just because I had it, um, the idea is that Adam and Eve, they're the first to come to earth, Apparently, the lady and the interpreter is okay if we call Adam a god. Maybe that's what Brigham really meant. That's not what Brigham meant, but okay. So they come to earth, and apparently there's a veil, so now they're like children, and they can't have kids without the knowledge from the fruit. So they're given two competing commandments, and then even her wisdom, and by the way, there's a children's book I recently saw by an LDS author where it's encouraging little girls to be like Eve. And, uh, you wow. know, yep. Um, yeah, so that's so bizarre from like, <laughs> but they're Christian an, too. They're, Christian uh, way I, know, of thinking. I know. Um, so, but at least she's being consistent with their stuff, right? The idea was you had a higher law and a lower law. Now for mortality, for the opportunity to become more like God comes with the possible cost of losing, of actually going backward in progression, right? With agency as this principle, yeah, it's going to help some get further along, but there's always the possibility of falling further away. And um, But anyway, the idea is Adam and Eve picked the higher law, but it still came with consequences from breaking the lower law. And so, you know, I, I think the analogy I remember hearing once was um, you have two rules for the babysitter to protect the child and never to go into the street. And then you look up and you see the child in the street. 
Um, so you're forced to pick one. What's the higher law? That's how they'll frame it. So, so then they'll say something like this. This is the chapter in the atonement. So it does say the atonement is necessary, right? So um, it's the most important event and all that. They'll, they'll say the fall of Adam brought two kinds of death into the world, physical death and spiritual death. Um, and spiritual death is separation from God. Physical death is separation of body and spirit. And if these two kinds of death had not been overcome by Jesus Christ's atonement, two consequences would have resulted. Our bodies and spirits would have been separated forever, and we could not have lived again with our Heavenly Father. Okay, So Jesus will come to earth to ransom us from our sins and from death. And um, so he was the only one who could atone for our sins, right? But why? One reason is Heavenly Father chose him. He was the only begotten Son of God, had power over death, um, Jesus also qualified to be our Savior because he's the only person who has ever lived on the earth who did not sin. This made him worthy sacrifice. So there's a, anyway, there, if you just go through a more recent manual, it's going to sound just kind of like confused evangelicalism. Yeah. Like it's still way off, but it's going to sound more evangelically. Um, but it's it's not, right? Like, you think of the whole context of this, right? Who is this God? Who is this Jesus? Who are Adam and Eve? And yeah. the debates Mormons have always had, and they'll always have because of Brigham Young, teaching yep. for over 30 years as a doctrine of the church, as a revelation, as from Joseph Smith in the temple that Michael was God. And so they're always, you know, it's just, if you keep it shallow, quote parts of the Book of Mormon, it can sound like it. Just yeah. look for when the Mormonism will come up, and you'll see the differences. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting studying some of this stuff from the LDS perspective because you really do find that there's never a deeper explanation of what they mean by the words that they're using. They're using the Christian words, but at least for me, as somebody who's learning and growing and coming to understand their system of theology better— when I read those words, I start to think, well, how does that relate? You know, mm-hmm. um, like they say, Jesus came to ransom us from our sin. Well, what does that mean for an LDS person? You know, and, and yeah. it's never explained what it means that he came to ransom us from our sins. There's even this um, debtor's prison video that's encouraged to be watched. And uh, I went and watched that video and it doesn't say anything. It, I mean, it, it, it almost gives um, in some ways uh, a, a, uh, evangelical understanding of like this this random person shows up and pays the debt of these people who are in prison and uh, they're in prison because of debts that they owed and they're released from their their sentence because somebody paid the debt for them and it's like okay but what does that what does that mean salvifically for you as an LDS person does that mean Jesus paid for your sins did he did he pay for all of them um, what, what then is the reason for all of this talk about, well, you only get the, the salvation we're talking about if you perform this, all these works. Do that. Well, then what did Jesus pay for? You know, mm-hmm. like there's just all these questions that come up. It's like, how does this, how does this work for mm-hmm. them? Why, why do they even claim this atonement if the atonement doesn't actually accomplish anything? Yeah. And so that's what, I mean, that's what I want to ask you, Skylar, is do you think in an LDS system the atonement accomplishes anything? And if so, what does it accomplish? So this is this is my 
view. Right. There's um, a lot out there. Right? There's a lot so, out there. Yeah. And once again, in different phases, I mean, I could go into blood atonement with Brigham Young and just show yeah. <laughs> different. And o- honestly, like um, if you're LDS or even if you're ex LDS, this would be a great, you know, thing like, you know, send, send us a message, send us an email at distinctivechristianity.com mm-hmm. or uh, distinctivechristianity.com, distinctivechristianity at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to know, what do you think the atonement is from an LDS perspective? Mm-hmm. What does it accomplish? Totally. I, I would just be curious to hear hear some feedback on this from people out there. Yeah, well, so I think there is one thinkers, and it's not even him, it's what's so behind him that I think can answer that in a way that honors the Mormon worldview and does make Jesus necessary. Um, I'd love to do a bonus episode on it someday because I think it's the only argument they have that has a logic to itself, is affirming early Mormon roots, like the the whole point of Mormonism, right? Eternal progression, become gods, all that. Um, And yet does make Jesus necessary. Um, But I think it's a problem in early Mormonism and it's a problem in later Mormonism. Mm-hmm. And people will be like, oh, you're taking it out of context because G- Joseph Smith said that the atonement is the most important doctrine. But it's like, but just think through his King Follett discourse. Yep. Read his Sermon on the Grove. He says, you need to become saviors yourselves. You need to become gods yourselves. Jesus is an example in that system. Mm-hmm. He's not. He doesn't actually do anything, right? right? right. Now, in recent stuff, once again, the, the attempt to become more evangelical, but from the Mormon foundation, it leaves me answering the same kind of wondering the same kind of thing. Like, why is he actually necessary? The way it was taught to me as a youth was, well, he paid for the debt. It's like giving you a tool. And if you don't use the tool, then it's inoperative. But once again, it's in this kind of universalist scheme. So like, I mean, all these talks, all these manuals, the word sin is used, I think, once in the manual, which is interesting. Hell never. Yeah. Like, for Easter... For like what the resurrection means, like yeah, nothing. Uh, so now there, there is a view. Um, I, th- I guess sometimes it's called the true meaning of the atonement or the personal search for the meaning of the atonement, something like that, by Cleon Skousen. Um And there is a apostle behind it, Woodso, who I've tried to, you know, basically promote as an interesting Mormon thinker, um, who does answer that. Question: yeah. Why is he necessary? And the idea is that justice is an eternal principle, right? And so, who enforces that? Well, once again, it goes to the magic worldview. Yeah, by principle, it means it's this law that's actually above God. God yes, is self-existent. Bound to this law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's eternal in the same way. Like our intelligences are just as eternal as that law. This is straight right? out of progressive Christianity, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's I, right I out of it. it's right out of postmodern liberal Christianity. I believe it. Um, And so the idea is you have all the intelligences in everything, right? Because that's something that is in the magic worldview that continued. Skousen tries to say, this isn't magic, but that's where it comes from. It's kind of a pantheism. The idea is there's intelligences in everything and they demand justice. Okay. So this is just really quickly the argument, right? So what what Jesus is doing to allow him to save some, uh, once again, there's a limit to damnation already, but to save some is that he, in a way that was not deserved, um, suffered infinitely. And in fact, uh, as I'm going to get to in a second, Talmadge, twice according to Talmadge. Um, 
And what that did is it brings about compassion in the intelligences, which allows Jesus to say on his merits, somebody can continue to try and progress. So now a key component of that, and I'll I'll put this in the show notes, is that God's power comes from below. He doesn't have power in himself. He's found a way to allow other people to become like himself and keep trying. So the atonement is an ability or provides the ability to continue trying to be like him until, but the goal ultimately is not to rely on Jesus, right? The goal is self-reliance. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. The goal is to eventually not need it at all. Right. Whereas for us, it's continual reliance. Yep. Eternal reliance. Yeah. So, right. So um, now they're going to emphasize Gethsemane quite a bit. So I figured I'd bring this up with Talmadge mm-hmm. in his Jesus the Christ. Um, once again, at this key kind of turning point in Mormon history, uh, getting away from the blood atonement stuff. And although I do think it survived in some ways, there's even a Japanese legal scholar that talks about how blood atonement informs certain laws that are unique to Utah. Really fascinating stuff. Um, But I should say just really quick, the idea was Brigham Young and I'll, I'll put links to original sources. So for those who think we're liars in the show notes, I link it's one click away to original sources. Go fight with them. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Um, but in there, uh, Brigham Young says there are sins that only your own blood can pay for or pay for partially. There are so, uh, you know, Brigham Young even says in one of these talks that if he caught one of his wives, one of his wives, um, sleeping with a man, he'd cast a javelin. He's like, I love her enough to put a javelin through her heart kind of mm-hmm. thing. Okay. So now we're beyond that, at least in terms of what is being publicly taught into Talmadge. And this is how he talks about Gethsemane. And I wonder if this is where the Gethsemane emphasis comes from. I'm, I've, I'm not totally sure when it started. Yeah. Um, but it says um, right here, let's see here. In that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors that Satan, the prince of this world, could inflict. So it's Satan inflicting it, which is interesting. Uh, The frightful struggle incident to the temptations immediately following the Lord's baptism was surpassed and overshadowed by the supreme contest with the powers of evil. In some manner, actual and terribly real, though to man incomprehensible, for now, uh, that's me, the Savior took upon himself the burden of the sins of mankind from Adam to the end of the world. And then he cites uh, D&C 19 uh, and some others. I'll put the page. Um, th- this book is actually available on the app. So I'll, I'll link to these uh, chapters and the show notes. So that's interesting, right? So now, once again, uh, from the sins of mankind from Adam, it's not original sin, right? But there's this idea that Adam sins, and then if you just count each individual sins, Jesus paid for in the garden. Okay. But he had assistance in the garden. If you go forward to the crucifixion, this is kind of interesting. And I wonder why this hasn't received more attention, um, even in Mormon circles that I've seen. Um, so he covers the Oloi, Oloi, Laba, Sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He, that's what he quotes. And then he says, What mind of man can fathom the significance of that awful cry? It seems that in addition to the fearful suffering incident to crucifixion, the agony of Gethsemane had recurred 
So that's interesting. So all the suffering of Gethsemane recurs, intensified beyond human power to endure. So this time he dies because he's doing it alone. So it's like he suffers infinitely twice or something. And I think this makes sense. Keep in mind Talmadge and Woodsow are contemporaries. Woodsow is the thinker behind Skousen. I think the idea is this is this suffering that Christ had brings about compassion among the intelligences of the universe, which allow people to be saved on his merits, by which they mean try, try, try again, mm -hmm. until you don't need it, um, because of the compassion they have for Jesus uniquely. Yeah. Cliff Notes version. Mm. Um, now, jumping to the interpreter, and then I'll get to the actual talks in the manual, but just the interpreter mentioned two talks. I just want to bring up one. Um, for Easter, the Easter episode, they talk about a, a, a talk from M. Catherine Thomas called Zion in the Spirit of at one Man. So she just says at one minute, she does this at one minute stuff. Yeah. Reminds both of us of Richard Rohr. Oh, yeah. Um, Turns it into just a good old new agey. Yeah. Tap into the inner part of your being <laughs> that connects you to all the humans and <laughs> get, get the right energy. That is not an exaggeration. Yeah. That is not an exaggeration. Let me read this. Okay. Um, so just... She talks about establishing inner peace. This is just one like six minute portion of the talk at the beginning. I could have, we could have spent all that whole hour on this. Um, she talks about um, establishing inner peace, and the Lord really cares about it. She cites the Book of Mormon for that, and um, she talks about she she even the, the one time I noticed her use the word sin, it was with self pity. Why? Because self pity causes me to withdraw. Um, licking my wounds, waiting for someone to fix what is really my responsibility to fix inside myself. Mm -hmm. It violates the spirit of that woman and the power of faith. Yeah. Whoa. For Easter, yeah. where Jesus did something unique as a gift for people who cannot fix themselves. Yep. She turns into, we have the responsibility, fix it yourself. So American, so pregnant. Mm -hmm. okay, here we go. Um, she talks about eventually acquiring the heavenly personality, whatever that means, that the Zion is the product of personal choice. Yes, also grace. She'll throw in grace too, but you know, personal choice. And then here it is. We have to synchronize our energy, energies with his, now his yep. being the Lord's. Yep. Quote, you know that you and I have the divine power to generate by an act of will positive energy. At any moment, what I send out is my choice. She cites Helaman 14 for that. When we uh, do choose to generate positive spiritual energy around us, which we have the power and the agency to do, the spirit of the Lord is attracted to that positive energy, connects with it, and magnifies its power. Isn't that amazing? Thus... Here's the big takeaway from that point. Thus, we learn to work as the Savior works. This is how he works. Oh, wow, thanks, M. Catherine Thomas. You're telling us how he works. Anything from the Bible? No. Anything from the historical Jesus? No. Anything from redemptive history? No. Anything rooted in the triune God? No. This, she's going to tell us, from her charismatic authority, apparently, this is how Jesus worked. Mm -hmm. And then she says this, then we learn to become as he is, even as we work in this life. Yeah. That's 
the talk for Easter yeah. to the interpreter. Wow. That so, is so, so the atonement is in no way um, the having to do with the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, ultimately. I mean, it has to do with this kind of spiritual energy that Jesus was putting out in his life that united him to other people who were putting out spiritual energy and created <laughs> kind of this great unity. I mean, it's very Eastern, very New Agey. <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah, I, and this talk was being given, it looked like to, it was official BYU video. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's on, on YouTube. On YouTube. So. This one, I couldn't find the text. I think it may be in a book or something. I'm not going to pay for it. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's, you know, just one of the understandings that, uh, LDS people will use for the atonement. Yes. And it really is. I mean, if you go listen to some Richard Rohr stuff, um, if you don't know who he is, he, he, uh, he's, the oh ringleader of all oh these boy. kind of new age uh, sort of people that want to still have some sort of loose ties yeah. to Christianity. I think Alyssa Childers calls him the Bob Dylan of new age. Yeah. 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 Cool. I, so g- give us some points from the other talks. Yeah. The um, ones actually cited in the manual. We're at the 41 minute mark. So okay, thank you. Run, run through a few. I, th- this one really stood out to me and especially given we're not going to have time to go. I, I went through all of these more than once. Um, they cite a talk by Christina B. Franco called The Power, The Healing Power of Jesus Christ. And the subheading, the the summary of the talk is this. As we come unto Jesus Christ by exercising faith in him, repenting, and making and keeping covenants, Every single one of these talks, they tie it to temple covenants, which are always conditioned on what you do. Our brokenness, whatever its cause, can be healed. Okay. This emphasis on brokenness, though, I'm all about it, right? I'm thinking Augustine's confessions. (laughs) I'm thinking, you know, just there's such a deep Western tradition of mourning with those who mourn, caring for the sick, the broken, right? Well, how does she start it? I'm gonna, this is worth reading. Let me tell you a personal story about brokenness. For Easter, okay, this is the talk. When our children were young, they decided they wanted to take piano lessons. My husband, Rudy, and I wanted to provide our children this opportunity, but we had no piano. We could not afford a new piano, so Rudy started looking for a used one. That year for Christmas, he surprised us all with a piano, and through the years, our children learned to play. When our sons grew up and left the house, the old piano just collected dust, so we sold it. A few years went by, and we had saved some money. One day, Rudy said, I think it's time we get a new piano. I asked, why would we get a new piano when neither of us plays? He said, oh, but we can get a piano that plays itself. By using an iPad, you can program the piano to play over 4,000 songs, including hymns, tabernacle choir songs. Notice they don't call it the Mormon tabernacle choir anymore. Tabernacle choir songs, all the primary songs, and so many more. Rudy is a great salesperson, to say the least. Let me remind you, this is the story about personal brokenness. Okay, Uh, for Easter. We purchased a beautiful new player piano, and a few days later, two big strong men delivered it to our house. I showed them where I wanted it and moved out of the way. It was a heavy, 
baby grand. And to fit it through the door, they removed the legs and managed to put the piano sideways on top of a moving dolly that they had brought with them. Our house sat on a little bit of a slope, and unfortunately, earlier that day, it had snowed, leaving things wet and slushy. Can you see where this is going? By the way, this is in October 2020. Remember what was happening in 2020. While the men were moving the piano up the little slope, it slipped, and I heard a big, loud crash. The piano had fallen off the moving dolly and hit the ground so hard that it left a big dent in our lawn. I said, oh my goodness, are you okay? Thankfully, both men were okay. Their eyes were wide as they looked at each other, then looked at me and said, we are sorry, we'll take it back to the store and have our manager call you. Soon the manager was talking with Rudy to arrange delivery of a new piano. Rudy is kind and forgiving and told the manager it was okay if they just repaired the damage and brought back the same piano, but the manager insisted on getting us a new one. Rudy responded saying, it couldn't be that bad, just fix it up and bring it over. The manager said, the wood is broken, and once the wood is broken, it can never sound the same. You'll get a new piano. Sisters and brothers, aren't we all like this piano? A little broken, cracked, and damaged, feeling like we'll never be the same again? However, as we come unto Jesus Christ by exercising faith in him, repenting and making and keeping covenants, our brokenness, whatever its cause, can be healed. This process, notice it's the process, this process which invites the Savior's healing power power into our lives, not the Savior himself, the person. Nope, it's got to be a power that they exercise does not just restore us to what we were before, but makes us better than we ever were. Which, by the way, I think Spencer W. Kimball and Miracle Forgiveness would disagree with her on that. But anyway, um, some people will know the reference. That, that is the story unbrokenness. Can, I, I, just, <clears throat> I don't know her personally. Yeah, I don't want to make this too personal. But like how elitist coddled I mean, do you, I get the sense she never talks with real people. Yeah. This is the year of COVID. No death, addiction, pornography, yeah. natural disaster. I mean, disability. I mean, th- there are stories of human brokenness everywhere. And she makes it about a piano and says, aren't we all a little broken? Yeah. No, we're not well, just a little broken. Yeah. It, and it, it doesn't... Uh... I would say that this way of thinking doesn't primarily stem from a misunderstanding about man even per se, as much as it does a misunderstanding about God. Yes. If you don't know who God is in his holiness, mm-hmm. you know, um, you need to know Isaiah 6. You know, you, any Christian out there listening, you need to have Isaiah 6 near committed to memory. Yep. Uh, it's such a fundamental uh, just vision that Isaiah has of God to see the nature of God. And, of course, in that particular vision, he sees God seated on the throne and says God is, is, is holy. The angels say he is holy, 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 which is the only place where, I mean, any attribute is attributed to God in what's called the superlative degree, which means, of course, he's holy. He's not just holy, though. He's holier, and he's not just holier than you. He's the holiest. There's nobody as holy, as, as perfect as him. And so all of his Attributes, uh, according to a doctrine that we call simplicity, um, none of his attributes are ever pitted against one another, but all of his attributes can be summed up, certainly, in his holiness um, and referring to him as such. And so um, I know you probably have some more stuff. I'm, I'm, feel free to bring it in, but I want to go ahead and turn us a little bit 
because I think that illustration is a great turning point to start focusing on where our understanding of atonement comes from as believers. And our understanding of atonement starts with God. It starts with his love, and it starts with his justice. And it starts with understanding those two things rightly. And one of the most beautiful places in the Bible where we can go to see these things right up against one another is Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, God shows up to Moses, and uh, he reveals his essential nature to Moses. He reveals his name to Moses. He's talking about, Moses, this is who I am. Is God saying everything about who he is in this one particular moment? No, but he certainly is showing one of the key components that anybody who's going to follow Yahweh needs to know about who Yahweh is. So let me just read this. This is Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. The Lord, Yahweh, that's uh, the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. So this is Yahweh proclaiming his own name. That means he is declaring his own nature to Moses here. He says, it says, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If that's where you stop, Maybe you could have stories about just being a slightly damaged piano that needs a little bit of forgiveness for sins that we have. But Yahweh is love, right? He's love. He's gracious. So I guess we're cleared. We're off the hook, right? Just because Yahweh's that way. But you can't stop reading the verse there because the verse goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's who Yahweh is. Okay, so so now you've got this tension, right? You've got a God of love, but we also see he's a God of justice. And the danger is to start thinking, well, is God conflicted within himself? And that's exactly you know what this verse, I think, is meant to do, is put us in this tension of how is God who is a just God, how is he going to clear the guilty? If he by no means will clear the guilty, but he's love, well, how how will he clear the guilty? We need atonement, right? We need atonement because we are broken, we are guilty, we are in our sin, we are, we are, we are lost, we are hopeless, we are without him. And that is where the doctrine of atonement comes right to the very heart and center of all of the plan of redemption that we see happening in the Bible. And we see this being worked out from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sin, I, I do think that God provides for them in their nakedness by killing an animal and by clothing them with the, the garments that were made from the animal. But then you see this idea of God providing atonement being developed throughout the Bible. And all of it is leading up to the one who would provide the true and perfect atoning sacrifice for his people, and that was Jesus himself. But atonement has always been a very, I mean, deep, meaningful theological category that, again, you can't just sum up in one line. But uh, if you're talking about the nature of the atonement within Christianity, we typically will point to the sacrificial nature of the atonement, 
the propitiatory nature of the atonement, the reconciliation uh, nature of the atonement, and the redemptive nature of the atonement. So those would be the four categories that we tend to work through. And as you as you start to deal with this tension of how is God going to clear the guilty, what we first see is that there has to be a sacrifice that is made. Um, there has to be some sort of sacrifice made on behalf of sinful man because the, the, the wages of sin is death. There, there is a blood shedding that needs to be paid in order for sins to be forgiven. So under the Levitical system, the way that this worked is people would bring animals and they, they were to bring their best animal, an animal without spot or without blemish, they would lay their hands on the animal and the, the, their sin would be expiated. It would be removed from them. Their sin would be imputed, we would say, so to speak, onto the animal. And then the animal would be killed, taking the punishment of their sin. There's a sacrifice that's being made. Their sins symbolically are being placed onto the animal and the animal is dying in their place for their sins. But then we see this being developed, of course, throughout the, I mean, even in the Psalms, it says the, the, the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to take away human sin, ultimately, because this is human sin. Um, and so there needs to be a human sacrifice that will be made. But that human sacrifice has to be a perfect sacrifice in order for it to be satisfactor, satisfactory to God. Um, and so that's where uh, even the idea of, of of course, Jesus being our sacrifice comes in. Um, he is he is sacrificing himself uh, for us on the cross. Uh, but not only on the cross, he's living his life sacrificially even. Um, you know, with theologians, we like to talk about Christ's active and passive obedience. Uh, his active obedience being his fulfillment of the law, his perfect obedience to the law, the requirements of God, his passive obedience being his suffering, both in his life and ultimately on his death. Um, he was perfectly obedient in our place as a sacrifice. And then, of course, we have the propitiatory element. The propitiation uh, refers to covering. Um, it refers to this idea of a covering for your sin that is ultimately accomplished by God's wrath or fury or anger being not turned towards you, but towards someone else who absorbs that wrath in your place. Um, so God is wrathful towards sin. He's a just God. He must punish sin. And so, you know, when we talk about propitiation, what we're referring to is Christ in his love. Uh, and really, we, when we say Christ, we're not just talking about Jesus. This is a plan. This was a Trinitarian plan, right, uh, before the foundation of the world. But uh, Christ comes, and the wrath of God is poured out onto him. The punishment that we deserved is poured out onto him. And he absorbs it in our place. That's that's the idea of propitiation going on there. And then, of course, the idea of reconciliation being central to the atonement as well. And uh, I think for this idea, I mean, I just want to turn to Second Corinthians uh, five real quick to talk just about one of the beautiful um, ways that we see reconciliation being worked out um, in the nature of the atonement. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 18, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is such a beautiful passage. Murray, John Murray, a theologian, wrote an excellent book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I highly recommend it. But he writes on this passage. Uh, he draws out a few different points. And the first is the reconciliation is represented as a work of God. It begins with God, and it's accomplished by him. So, so the atonement is something that God is accomplishing. It's not some power that we're tapping into. It's not something that we're participating in. It's not some energy that we're emitting. We see re- the reconciliation, the, the at- atoning work of Christ, it begins with God. It's accomplished by God. All things are of God who reconciled us to himself. And then secondly, in these verses, we see that reconciliation is a finished work mm-hmm. because all of the tenses in verses 18, 19, and 21 make it beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is finished. Christ's atoning work that has accomplished our redemption or that has accomplished our reconciliation with him is finished, right? Um, there's, no, there's nothing more to be done by us. It's done by Christ. And then uh, the third point that he makes is that uh, the reconciliation consisted is expounded for us in this passage. He says, him who knew no sin to be what he made to be sin for us that we might become the righteous of God in him. And that's pointing us to the vicarious sin-bearing of Christ as that which brought the reconciliation into being. So he's pointing out the forensic nature of this. God is not counting our sins against us anymore. That's the reconciliatory work. Uh, Our trespasses are not counted against us anymore, which means that we can be positively put into relationship with God who is holy because our, our, our sins are no longer to be counted against us. And then this last point is just so good that I'm going to read. This accomplished work of reconciliation is the message committed to the messengers of the gospel. So those who have received this reconciliation are to go and preach this reconciliation to others who need this reconciliation. It constitutes the content of the message. But the message is that which is declared to be a fact Okay, the, me- the message of reconciliation is a definitive fact. It's not mm-hmm. something you're working towards. It's something that is a, is a factual mm-hmm. thing that God has accomplished. Conversion, okay. conversion, it ought to be remembered, is not the gospel. Boy, that will fly in the face of LDS doctrine right there, won't it? <laughs> Conversion's not the gospel. No. The gospel's not you being further converted. It's not progression. That's it's right. not what you do at all. That's right. It is the demand of the gospel message and the proper use and the proper response to it. Any transformation which occurs in us is the effect in us of that which is proclaimed to have been accomplished by God. The change in our hearts and minds presupposes reconciliation. That's such good stuff. And I'll just stop there because we could go on. But then the last element of atonement is redemption. And redemption can be understood in a broader sense or in a more narrow sense. We can't understand redemption in terms of God's full plan to redeem all of creation um, at the end of the day. And that is a beautiful and glorious way that we can look at the redemption. But redemption is also understood in a more narrow sense, having to do with our justification um, that occurs. Uh, And that is accomplished by uh, Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
Um, we are justified, declared righteous before God um, by Christ taking the curse, the punishment of the sin that we deserve uh, on the cross in our place. So there's so much more that we could cover there, um, but I did just want to get like a semi-abbreviated understanding of how we would see the nature of the atonement. Ultimately, it's Christ's work for us. That's what the atonement is. It's all that he did to accomplish our salvation. Um, and so we often will talk, even Murray's book title, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. We'll talk about the atonement in terms of what Christ has accomplished. And then that accomplished reality gets applied to us by the Holy Spirit in our real life you know, experience as we grow as we grow as believers. What do you want to add? Absolutely. I'm going to riff off of that. The way, the way um, I want to frame it is another talk that was in the additional resources uh, section at the end it was Sharon Eubanks' Light That Shines in Darkness. Bunch of weird stuff in here, but she has this point. Well, of course, she's, she's wrestling with questions, right? And of course, where does she go to find answers to her questions, you know, her silly dreams, but okay. Uh, she then has this line, uh, his scarlet blood returns us to purity, right, about Jesus. It isn't logical, but it is nevertheless true. And then this is her in essence. She says, in essence. So she's going to summarize, I guess, their equivalent to what you just said. Come, let us reason together. You made mistakes. Notice, not sin. You made mistakes. I'll come short. Come unto me and repent. I'll remember the sin no more. You can be whole again. I have a work for you to do. Christ makes wool white. That's her summary. And of course, not logical. It's, it's nevertheless true. Wow. Well, yeah, it's not logical from the Mormon worldview because the Mormon worldview is antithetical to the biblical worldview, but it makes complete sense within the biblical worldview. So when uh, it, it's just crazy to, to cite Isaiah 1 where he says, come let us reason together. Mm-hmm. Come let us reason, so logic <laughs> together. She said, that's oh, not logical, but she'll lean into some silly dream. Okay, let's get to this. I, I think this is super interesting because Isaiah is wrestling with this mystery. The holiness of God, the unholiness of man yep. post-rebellion mm-hmm. and sin. And why do we not just say mistakes? If you, if you say just mistakes, you just need better instruction, examples, encouragement. What about crimes? Even crimes, right? It might require incarceration, therapy to improve. But see, mistakes and crimes are not our primary problem. The wrongs that we do are called sins because they are first and foremost rebellions against God. Not ourself, not our self-image, not our progression, not even others. Um, like, what, did, what does David say? And he did grievously sin against many people. Uh, and yet, what does he say? You, Lord, you alone have I sinned against in the Psalms. So, here you have, right, and, and notice even the sin, right? God says, eat eat of all this, but this one, don't. Mm-hmm. And we could get into this more, but we see the man and the woman putting themselves at the center yeah. with the allure of becoming like gods, taking and eating 
and bringing in death and sin. And once again, death, sin, hell, like we mean these words seriously. We don't mean them as like little injuries that can be fixed yeah. or, you know, don't self-pity being a sin because, you know, you should fix yourself. No, no, no. If you don't get that problem right, you're not going to get the gospel right. And here Isaiah is wrestling with this, right? Here you have the promises of God. And one of the talks, I'll put this in the show notes, they make the covenant something Abraham does. That's interesting. If you go to Genesis, it's the opposite. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered is what O. Palmer Robertson defines covenant as. And what it is is God's promise. And notice, in the cutting of the pieces, uh, pun there on covenant and cutting, right? In the cutting, what what is Abraham doing? Typically, this cutting of the pieces ceremony, it's it's a sovereign or their ambassadors from both sides walking through the pieces. But no, Abraham's resting. He's not doing anything. And God commits to himself and walks through, right? So here you have holy God, unholy man, and here's Isaiah at this critical moment. And we know in Isaiah 6, he sees exile's coming. Yeah. They're not going to listen. Then how is the promise going to be fulfilled? Mm. This is the context for Isaiah one. By the way, a lot of Craig Evans' book on Isaiah is really, really good. Yep. But he he shows that there is incredible um, movements in Isaiah that it's not just chronological. Isaiah six is the framing of the whole book, and Isaiah one was probably written later, but put at the front. So here it here it is. Come, let it, documenting the sin of Israel, and God says, come. Let us reason together. And he declares their sin clearly. But then he declares their forgiveness clearly. Mm-hmm. Now, right after that, it does go into repentance and all that. So why isn't this logical to her, but logical to us? Because we know where Isaiah's going. Yep. Because what's going to be the answer? Who's going to bridge the gap? Yep. Who's going to... How does the Holy God forgive sins? Exactly. Yep. And it's through... The Messiah that's later in Isaiah talked about and prophesied about, right? Now, once again, there's going to be these promises fulfilled in the interim, right? I mean, he even predicts uh, Cyrus's names. You've been preaching Ezra Nehemiah. You're seeing the promises of God fulfilled, but there's a sense in which they're not entirely fulfilled there. And they're waiting for one who will come, who will bear the sins of his people, Mm -hmm. who is truly righteous. Yep. And, you know, so... It's it's a, per, uh, a perfect sacrifice. Yes. Yeah. E.J. Young, this is how he paraphrases that. I now regard your sins as blood red, but I shall regard them as white. And he goes a lot into the, you know, how red is also the blood of violence. Um, it's just, it's, this is a really good commentary, E.J. Young's. So why, why, why do I go there? Well, because Isaiah is at the center of the Bible, right? He sees what's coming. He sees what's been before. And he's kind of the glue theologically of the Old Testament. But what do we see? When Jesus comes, right? And think of, think of the Lord's Supper, right? He says, take and eat. Take and eat. These are negative terms in the Bible. These are, until Jesus, until the Messiah came, these are terms of rebellion, of putting ourselves, doing what's right in our eyes, um, idolatry, right? And instead, he, as the fruit of another tree, of another tree, the fruit of that tree is our life. 
And, and we see this even in Moses, right? God is our life. It's, we're not just looking for fruit for our own progression. God's life. God is our life. And so he's offering his body and blood from the tree of the cross. Yep. That's something ain't mentioned anywhere in this, really. Yep. And certainly not discussed. And the vindication of that sacrifice yeah. is the resurrection. Yeah. And what does the resurrection mean? We don't have time to get into this, but if you look at Acts 17, Paul is not just going to Mars Hill in Athens and declaring the fact of the resurrection, but the interpretation of the resurrection, which is by that historic event, all people everywhere, including anyone listening, will answer to Jesus Christ on the last day. Yep. That's the interpretation of the resurrection. Yeah, that's right. Let's see in Philippians 2. Yep. Everyone will be resurrected. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right. But that doesn't mean that every knee that bows and every tongue that confesses is going to have the righteous covering of Jesus that will allow them to be in the perfect presence of God forever. Right. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, there's a dividing line at the point of the atonement as well. Are you going to trust Christ alone and give him the glory that is due his name for what he has accomplished in your place? Um, which is yeah. the only way to be saved. Right. Jesus Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about his atoning work. Are you going right. to trust his atoning work alone mm-hmm. in your place that he was a substitute for you? He took your penalty, the penalty that you owed, that you cannot add a single ounce of righteousness to his account you only can rely on his perfect righteousness. And to do anything other than that is to offend him mm-hmm. in the work that he's done and to bring judgment upon you. Yep. Uh, because your your works of righteousness, as Isaiah says, are nothing but filthy rags before him. So will, mm-hmm. will you depend on him yep. and on him alone, or or will you pridefully cling to your own energy or, yep. or yep. Your, your own principles self or, or yeah. principles? Or, yeah. yeah. He says, no man comes to the Father but by me, not just what I taught, not just my example, not my energies, not my yeah. <laughs> and so I just I want to make this really clear, and then I'm going to turn over to you to wrap it up with yeah. last thoughts. But um, the atonement is not something you do. Um, it's not something you tap into. It's not. It's not a, an obscure energy source. The atonement is what Christ has done that you are called to rely on for your full and complete salvation, for which. Jesus will get the glory on the last day. We're not saying that that doesn't mean that you can go and live however you want, rely on the atonement, go live however you want. Those who place their faith in Jesus and in his atoning sacrifice have that redemptive work applied to them by the Spirit, meaning that Christ indwells their hearts through faith and begins to change them so that they walk in righteousness and become more like Jesus uh, but that is not the atonement. Um, that's the that's the application of what Jesus has done by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But that's not the work that was accomplished that we're called to worship Him for. Right, and even those good works Paul calls in Galatians, right, fruits of the Spirit. That's right. Not of ourselves. So we don't our get agency, we don't get praise and glory for yeah. growing in righteousness, right? Because we recognize this is only even happening. By God's grace. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And and so when when you see, oh, it's not logical, it's like, no, 
it is logical based on the worldview of scripture. Yeah. You know, and if maybe if Sharon would stop relying on her silly dreams, she'd see that. Yeah. Maybe you start studying the Bible because the reason is found in that which the promise pointed to, which was the Messiah, and that which we look back on Christ and who we now worship as king sit enthroned currently yep. in his resurrected body yep. at the right hand of the Father. That's what we believe. This isn't a metaphor for us. Yep. Like that, he really rose on the third day. That's right. And in that body is ruling right now. Yep. Not the conspiracies, not the New World Order, not the blah, 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 blah. blah. No, Christ. Yeah. These, these are historical facts. Yes. Yep. That's, see, he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. That's history. Yep. He died for our sins. That's doctrine. Yeah. That's how we view it. Yep. And that's how Jews always have viewed it. Yep. So I, I thought the, the center, it's, it's called the center of the Bible, right, is in Romans 3. And I just, Figured here and then maybe end with the First Corinthians Creed. Yeah, um, I don't know where to start because there's a lot here. If you if you want to read Romans, right? But just I'm going to jump around a little bit. Just none is righteous. No, not one. Right? No one understands. No one seeks for God. Um, this is the context for the atonement. Right? Um, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Um. Skipping to 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks as those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, and that's, that's the inspired law, that's not just principles from current general authorities giving you know, McDonald's therapy talks. No, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... And here's the shift in the letter, if you see the whole letter. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Not something we participate with, not something we do. It's a gift. Grace must be free to be grace. Yeah. And that's not cheap. It's God, it's God himself. God is giving of himself. This is not the son satisfying the father. The father put forth his son through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I highly recommend a book called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross by Leon Morris. If you want to see what the real apostles taught about the atonement, Read that book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. And he has, um, in fact, two chapters on this word for propitiation, right? Yeah. And of course, um, just long story short, it's the cover of the ark where Yahweh would appear, but on which the sacrificial blood was poured on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. To be received by faith, right there, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And just remember, this is, he says, right, that he justifies the wicked. And Joseph Smith changed that to justify not the wicked. They can't both be true. Paul said, God justifies the wicked. He doesn't come to the righteous. He doesn't come to those who do everything they can and make up the rest. He comes and justifies 
the wicked, those who absolutely don't deserve it at all, and he saves them yep. for his own glory. That's not for them, too. not for their progress, yep. for his own glory. The it's it's kind of sad this didn't really come up much in any of the talks, but this creed predates um like Paul is quoting this, so this predates. So this is yeah. one of the earliest Christian creeds. Before you read it, yes. I just want to recommend one last resource. Please, if you're please. more of a video kind of a person and you want to dig more into this and see, I think even some of the things that are at the heart of the current LDS understanding of atonement versus our view, go watch the American gospel, Christ mm-hmm. crucified. Yes. It's like three hours long, but it's worth your time. Mm-hmm. And that'll show really a lot of these new agey sorts of views up against the biblical view. Um, so the American gospel, yes. Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. There's also the American gospel, Christ alone. You can watch that too. But if you want to really focus on the atonement, go watch the American gospel, Christ crucified. Yes. All right, wrap us up. This is Paul. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Appreciate y'all listening with us. Next week, we'll be looking at Matthew 15 to 17 and Mark 7 to 9. See you then.